Hello and welcome to Borderlines, a podcast for the discussion of Canadian immigration law. I'm Steve Mirens and I'm recording a quick introduction to this episode. In this episode, Peter Edelman and I are joined by former Supreme Court of Canada Justice Marshall Rothstein, who served on the Supreme Court of Canada from 2006 to 2015. In the landmark 2009 Supreme Court of Canada decision in Canada Citizenship and Immigration v. COSA, Justice Rothstein penned a notable concurrence in which he criticized the majority's approach to standard of review. We're also joined in this episode by Garth Barrier, who is counsel for Mr. COSA in that Supreme Court of Canada decision. It was rather interesting, actually, having counsel and judge commenting on the case together in this podcast. And uh, there's a rather funny moment where Garth says, Justice Rothstein wrote, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. Anyway, in addition to providing some excellent tips on appellate advocacy, Justice Rothstein and Garth provide their opinions on the COSA case, and they also share their thoughts on the current state of standard of review jurisprudence in general. As I previously mentioned, standard of review has been one of the most divisive topics for the judiciary in Canada. In fact, in a recent Federal Court of Appeal decision titled Bell v. Canada, Justice Nadon described the current state of a fear as being incoherent, and it's pretty rare that the Supreme Court of Canada's nine judges will ever agree on what the standard of review in a case should be. In brief, standard of review is about how much deference courts will give administrative tribunals. In the immigration context, for example, if a judge is reviewing the decision of a visa officer to refuse a visa application, does the judge look at whether the visa officer's decision was correct or whether it was reasonable? What does reasonable mean and how much deference should the judge give the visa officer? Now, after this podcast was recorded, Justice Rothstein asked me to clarify a Supreme Court of Canada decision that he cited, and the decision is Canada Director of Investigation and Research v. Southam, Inc. And the quote that he cites in the podcast and wanted me to more fully cite now is as follows, quote, In the final result, the standard of reasonableness simply instructs reviewing courts to accord considerable weight to the views of tribunals about matters with respect to which they have significant expertise. While a policy of deference to expertise may take the form of a particular standard of review, at bottom the issue is the weight that should be accorded to expert opinions. In other words, deference in terms of a standard of reasonableness and deference in terms of weight are two sides of the same coin. In this respect, I agree with Karen Supra at paragraph 17, who described deference to expertise in the following way. Experts in our society are called that precisely because they arrive at well-informed and rational conclusions. If that is so, they should be able to explain to a fair-minded but less well-informed observer the reasons for their conclusions. If they cannot, they are not very expert. If something is worth knowing and relying upon, it is worth telling. Expertise commands deference only when the expert is coherent. Expertise loses a right to deference when it is not defensible. That said, it seems obvious that appellate courts manifestly must give great weight to cognate views thus articulated. End quote. This is Garth's second appearance on Borderlines. 
If you want to hear his first appearance in which he and Eric Pertsky, another criminal defense attorney in Vancouver, talked about whether laws can be retroactive or retrospective, you can find that in Borderlines Episode 9. We've also discussed standard of review on Borderlines several times. For a somewhat counter-opinion to those expressed today by Peter, Garth, Justice Rothstein, and myself, I recommend listening to Border Ep- Borderlines Episode 11 with Dean Sawson of Osgood Hall Law School, who favors a more deferential approach to tribunals. Once again, that one is Borderlines Episode 11. Finally, of course, as always, if you like the podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. You can also find Peter and I on Twitter. And I hope you enjoy today's episode. Hey, hello, and welcome to Borderlines. Uh, we're very fortunate today to have uh, with us two guests. Uh, we have uh, Justice Marshall Rothstein, uh, who's a former justice of the Supreme Court of Canada. And uh, Garth Barriere, who was uh, counsel on several cases before the Supreme Court and uh, continues to do a lot of appellate advocacy. Uh, the focus of our discussion today will be on a case uh, where both uh, Justice Rothstein and uh, Garth were at the Supreme Court. Uh, Justice Rothstein wrote uh, a concurring decision in uh, the case of COSA uh, about 10 years ago. And uh, Garth was lead counsel for Mr. Kosa, and uh, we thought that it would be a worthwhile discussion to have today because uh, for a couple of reasons. One, as our listeners know, this has been a, dis- a topic that comes up uh, again and again in immigration law and in administrative law in general with respect to standard of review and uh, how the courts, uh, the, the stance that the courts take in relation to decisions by uh, various immigration tribunals and decisions by officers. Uh, And for those of you who have been following this area, uh, you may be aware that the Supreme Court of Canada has uh, indicated that they're going to revisit this question of standard of review in a series of cases. Uh, There are three cases, uh, Vavilov, which is a citizenship case, uh, and then two Copyright uh, Broadcasting Act cases. Uh, Bell Canada and uh, the NFL uh, cases that the three of them are being heard together uh, with a large number of interveners. And so, um, so I'd like to welcome both, uh, both Garth and, and Justice Rothstein. And maybe we can start with a little bit of an introduction. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with Justice Rothstein, uh, he was one of the, the few judges and perhaps the only judge that came from the federal court uh, system onto the Supreme Court of Canada. And Oh, I mean, I see no. That is a, there was, there was a, uh, Justice Ledeen back in the 1980s came from the federal court, and uh, Justice Iacovucci came from the federal okay, court. Okay, from the federal court. Yeah. Okay. So, uh, um, well, thank you for that. That's actually helpful. I guess now we haven't seen anybody from the federal court uh, on, the, uh, on the court given uh, the saga, saga with justice, although there was an attempt to put Justice Nadeau onto the court. Uh, the um, so in terms of Justice Rothstein's background, uh, some of you may be familiar with uh, with his decisions from before. Uh, he was on the Supreme Court of Canada. Has made a number of decisions that are relevant in both my area of practice and in uh, some of the other areas of practice. Uh, going back to when uh, when you were on the federal court, uh, I know the Singh decision. 
uh, was one of the early decisions dealing with security certificates uh, and the, the questions around how to interpret membership in terrorist organizations. Uh, that question was revisited again when uh, when Justice Rothstein was on the Federal Court of Appeal uh, in Poshte, which uh, dealt with a number uh, a number of issues, in particular with respect to youth uh, membership in uh, in terrorist organizations and in other uh, forms of inadmissibility. Uh, you people will also be familiar with uh, for those of us who practice refugee law will also be familiar with the interpretation very early in the. Uh, interpretation of Section 97, uh, the Lee case at the Federal Court of Appeal, uh, and in the detention context, the Sahim case, uh, which uh, both decisions that were written by Justice Rothstein and have been influential, Sahim in, in the context of detention. Um, and so we've seen an, a, a number of areas in immigration law where uh, um, your decisions continue to be relevant. Uh, Today, we're hoping to focus on one decision in particular uh, that was decided at the Supreme Court of Canada. And in fact, uh, Justice Rossi didn't write the majority opinion, but uh, the I think the dissent on the, the questions of standard review are particularly interesting, uh, in particular given the discussions that we've had here. And I had the opportunity to hear you talk at a, an administrative law uh, function uh, for the CBA recently, and I, I think that it's definitely a worthwhile discussion for us to have. So um, without further ado, I don't know if, if uh, maybe we can just talk, uh, at, since we have the opportunity to have a Supreme Court, somebody who sat on three levels of court, um, just to get a little bit of a sense from you as to what your experience was and looking back on a career in the judiciary, uh, what... Uh, what what experience do you have, uh, or what what do you where are you at now, looking back on this uh, on your experience in the judiciary? Well, first of all, you have to know that um, uh, when I when I first went to the federal court in 1992, I was faced with areas of law that I had never heard of before: access to information, immigration, uh, various kinds of judicial reviews that were all brand new to me. And, um, and I have to tell you that uh, in the first six months or so, I thought I might have made a terrible mistake um, uh, because I, I was on a very steep learning curve. But, uh, but eventually you start to get used to, the, uh, used to the work. And in immigration, uh, you get used to the legislation and, uh, and it becomes uh, a little more... Uh, uh, user friendly to you as you as you work through the uh, the cases. Um, my work at the trial division, I must say, I enjoyed the I enjoyed the freedom that I had. And uh, what I found was that uh, I would hear a case, and I'm not talking about evidence, of course, but I'd hear a judicial review, and uh, if I felt that something was missing when I was writing the decision, I'd get the registrar in and we'd get counsel on the phone and I'd say, well, look, um, you know, I understand A and I understand B, but I don't know how you get to D. You've got to tell me about C. And, uh, and uh, I'd say, uh, appellant or applicant, you write, you write something up and send it to the respondent's lawyer in three days 
uh, respondent's lawyer, you send something back to the applicant's lawyer in three days. We'll have a further conference call in a week, and you'll explain to me what this point is that I'm having difficulty with. And, and we did that. And, uh, and I did that on a number of occasions. Um, uh, and it made, gave me more confidence in being able to write a judgment that was hopefully complete and coherent and covered all the relevant bases. Um, in the Court of Appeal, and especially the Supreme Court, you can't do that. Uh, you know, in the Court of Appeal, the judges are itinerant, and, uh, and so they're not always in the same place. And in the Supreme Court, it's impossible with, with, with nine, nine judges to uh, insist that you contact the parties again if there seems to have been a gap in the, uh, in, in the argument. Uh, now, I, I don't want to leave you with the wrong impression. Um, uh, when I talk about leaving a gap, I'm talking about a step along the way. I'm not talking about as a judge raising some brand new thing that's going to be decisive in the, uh, in the decision. I think, you know, judges have to rely on counsel for, uh, for the basic input. But uh, certainly in, in giving you confidence that you could, uh, uh, could get all the necessary argument before you, the trial division was, uh, was a very comfortable place to be. Court of Appeal, I didn't have the freedom that I had in the uh, trial court in the trial division, but I had the benefit of the wisdom of two colleagues on each case, and I know that there were cases where I came out of court being absolutely certain that the decision should go a certain way, and being convinced by my colleagues that uh, it should not, and uh, so. There's wisdom in having three judges in the Court of Appeal because, uh, uh, because the judges see things in different ways and then they discuss it and uh, hopefully they come to a better decision with that, kind of, uh, with that kind of input. And similarly, the Supreme Court, um, the, the resources were terrific. We each had three law clerks. Um, you're dealing with eight other judges. Uh, sometimes the court sits with seven, you're dealing with six other judges, and uh, you're getting wisdom from, uh, from these other judges, and, uh, and uh, it helps, to, to, it helps t uh, to give you confidence that the decision that is going to be written, whether you write it or whether somebody else writes it, is uh, hopefully going to be the decision that properly reflects the facts and the law and the charter of the Constitution where they're relevant. And we, we had the opportunity of, uh, a few months ago to have Justice Diner with us from the federal court and uh, he gave, we had a, a long discussion about advocacy in front of the court, uh, both written and oral advocacy, uh, which was, I mean, a great opportunity for all of us who were involved in the conversation. Um, I'm curious if you have any uh, insight for counsel who are going into the appellate levels, who are doing work before the Federal Court of Appeal or at the Supreme Court of Canada, um, what, what strategies or, or approaches would you suggest that would be different at those levels uh, as opposed to work in front of the trial division, which most of us are uh, obviously spending much, much of our time in front of the trial division? 
Well, my first advice is win a trial. <laughs> you know, I, I don't know what the Canadian statistics are, but I did read somewhere that in the federal court system in the United States, 80% of decisions, trial decisions are upheld. So the, pers the, 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 the percentage uh, of, of overturns is, is relatively low. I don't know if it's that low in, in Canada, but, uh, but I, my experience is that you got to get the facts down and you got to get the facts found in your favor. That's the, that's the, best, the, the, the best advice that I can give. But when you get to the appellate level, um, guess there are, there are a few basic things. First of all, in 2018, written advocacy is far, far, far more important than oral advocacy. You know, uh, when I started practicing 52 years ago, oral advocacy was very important. You know, part of that, part of the change has to do with the word processing. You know, in the old days, you kind of got a factum strung together, maybe eight or ten pages. Uh, you didn't stick to the factum as such. You, you, you did a lot of extemporizing. Uh, you couldn't get the factum done over and over again uh, as we do with word processing now. So oral advocacy, I think, was more important. Maybe we were more tied to the British tradition where oral advocacy tends to be more important than in Canada. Uh, but today, it's written advocacy. Uh, I can tell you at the Supreme Court that 90% of cases are based on the written advocacy and maybe 10% are affected by the oral advocacy. I'll come back to oral because I don't want to say that oral isn't important I just want to talk about the proportion and how important written is. And written is, is the most important because uh, the judges and their law clerks have the factums before the case. That's what they're going to use to prepare. They're going to have it when they're in court. They're, they're going to use the factums to ask questions of the lawyers. And then when the case is over and they go away and write the judgment, they got the factums. So, uh, so it seems pretty apparent that written is, is really where, where it's got to be. Plus, you know, when you write a factum and you spend your time with it and you revise it and you consider it and you look at it and you're careful with it and so on, chances are you're going to make better points with a carefully written uh, and rewritten factum than you are uh, extemporizing in, in court, hoping you'll have the inspiration of the moment. Um, so I, I do want to emphasize the importance of written. Um, John Laskin, who is the, the expert in, in, in teaching legal writing, says that the most important thing in written advocacy is called point-first writing which means you make the point first, then you explain it. And he, he says that, uh, that, that people read by prediction and confirmation. 
and you, uh, by, by stating the point first, you kind of tell the reader, the judge, uh, the point you're trying to make, and then you explain it. So, as he says, you don't treat it like a mystery novel where you start and you've got to lay out uh, a whole bunch of preliminaries and uh, kind of surprise the judge at the end. Uh, better to, uh, to, to, to make the point first and to do that through the whole factum and, and to do it by uh, paragraph by paragraph, by, head, by subject headings and things like that to keep giving the judges a prediction as to what the detail will be that they will subsequently start to read. Uh, so uh, I think that's really an important uh, aspect of, uh, of appellate advocacy. Uh, the overview, uh, again, uh, it's John Laskin who uh, uh, says the overview is critical. I can tell you that when I was at the Supreme Court, um, I often read the overviews from the appellant and the respondent first. <clears throat> Uh, just to get the context of what was going on, what was an issue. And John Laskin says, tell it like you're talking to your neighbor across the back fence. Try to keep the jargon and the legalese out of it and uh, make it understandable uh, to, the, uh, to the reader. Now, that's not always going to be easy. You know, when you've got a, a factual case, it's easier because the reader can understand facts real fast. When you're dealing with principles and theories and doctrines and stuff like that, it's, it's more difficult to keep it simple. But the objective is to try to keep it so short and simple so that the judge gets the picture of what your case is about um, uh, right from the start. Um, I, I, I'll, I'll take just a word about oral advocacy. Um, and I'll speak about the Supreme Court, but I think the same thing is probably true in a court of appeal. Uh, at the Supreme Court, the oral advocacy is important for answering the judge's questions. The judges really, really prepare well in the Supreme Court. And when they come in and they ask questions, chances are they are going to be hostile questions. When I say hostile, I mean they're going to be questions that are Adver likely adverse to your position. The judges will have read the factums, they will see something in your opponent's factum, and they'll, they'll ask a question based on that, or perhaps based on their own thinking, but it'll be a question that, uh, that you'll, have to, you'll have to be prepared to answer. And uh, so if you've worked up your case thoroughly, hopefully you'll have the answer. Uh, and so the most important aspect in the Supreme Court, at least, of the oral advocacy is answering questions. The judges have the factum. Yes, you can highlight. Yeah, obviously, you're there and you'll highlight what's in your factum. But, but the most important thing is uh, answering questions. I always say, if you're given one hour to argue, which is the usual time limit there for a party, um, prepare to argue for 30 or 40 minutes and leave 20 or 30 minutes for questions. And that will avoid the problem of having to talk fast, which is useless because the judges aren't going to be able to, 
assimilate what you're saying if you're speeding through your your prepared argument um, and uh, and so prepare to argue for 30 or 40 minutes use the other 20 or 30 minutes to answer questions if you don't get any questions it either means the judges are agreeing with you or it means your case is so bereft of any hope that there's no point in asking questions either way uh, uh, it, it won't matter so, uh, so that to me is the importance of, of oral. I will make one other distinction if I can, and that's the distinction between the Federal Court of Appeal, where I was, and maybe every court of appeal, and the Supreme Court. At the Supreme Court, because the time is short, one hour to argue, and because each judge is sharing the time with eight others, the judges don't get much time for asking questions and trying to formulate their thinking in court. They've prepared and they're pretty, pretty well prepared when they get into court. When I was at the Federal Court of Appeal, I made a point of not over-preparing. And that's because when I had been a lawyer the first time, I hated it when I came into court and I saw that the judges had already made up their mind. And I was wondering what I was doing there as counsel. So I would read the factums once. Uh, we, we were itinerant, so I'd get on the airplane and I'd go to Toronto or go to Vancouver or Calgary, wherever I was, I was, was going, and I'd read the factums on the plane for the week. Uh, and then the night before the, the two appeals that we'd hear each day, we usually heard two a day, I'd reread the factums the night before, but I deliberately didn't try to to, to come to a firm decision. And then, because I had more time in court in the Federal Court of Appeal, an hour and a half or perhaps two hours for each side, uh, I was able to get into, uh, into a discussion with counsel uh, and ask questions and say, look, uh, now you're saying this, but in paragraph 17 of your factum you said that, and you know, what, which is right, and, you know, either I had misunderstood or maybe there was an inconsistency. And, uh, and frankly, I enjoyed that. It gave me more confidence when I left the courtroom that I had, had, had engaged thoroughly with counsel and walked away and felt fairly confident, as confident as I could be, that I knew what was going on in the case. Um, didn't have that luxury at the Supreme Court, and that's just simply because of the limited amount of time and the sharing of time with so many other judges. And so yeah, I just had to prepare way, way more thoroughly in the Supreme Court. Plus the fact that the cases were always harder at the Supreme Court. And that's because at the Court of Appeal, 50 or 60% of the cases were dismissible from the bench. Uh, uh, at the Supreme Court, they only heard cases on which they granted leave. So by definition, they were all the hard cases. 100% of the cases were hard. Even in CRIM, where, um, where uh, some cases came as of right, they came because there was a dispute in the Court of Appeal. The Court of Appeal wasn't unanimous, and, um, and, uh, and so there was, a, there was a legitimate difference, and so all the cases were hard, and so you just had to work all that much harder. No, I've, uh, I've definitely learned in the, the I mean, and I realized, I guess, later on about having nine justices is also about listening to the questions that get asked 
when the respondent or when the other party is standing because that may be the only uh, time that you really get a sense of what a particular justice is thinking or, or what they're doing. And I've, I've definitely noticed that, uh, and I'm much more cautious of that now. I, uh, I, I, w I want to just make one other point since you mentioned that. Um, if you go down as an intervener, um, first of all, I often read the intervener's factums first because they were short and they were to the point. And sometimes it was, it was useful to just get an intervener's take on a certain point. But if you came down, if you go down as an intervener, you've got to listen to the judge's questions. Sometimes counsel for the appellant or respondent doesn't quite answer the question as, as well as you think it should be answered. And if you're really solid and you really do have a good feel for for the, 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 the answer to the question the judge asked, it's very valuable, and I know it was for me as a judge, uh, to have an intervener counsel stand up and say, look, uh, Justice so-and-so asked the appellant this question. Uh, if I could just add a bit to the answer, and then you go on and you answer. Now, you better be damn well certain that you've got a good answer, uh, because I've seen interveners wade in and sometimes muddle up the whole thing. But if you're sound and you've got a good solid answer, it's very useful uh, to use your time answering that question rather than just repeating your fact. So I've got, I've got, sorry, I've got a couple of comments I think support what you're saying. Um, first of all, uh, when I taught appellate advocacy at UBC, we referred to Justice Laskin's article, and I believe um, the point first article is on the Court of Appeal of Ontario's website. So for those who want to go look at it, it really is the first thing you should read when you're training yourself to write factums. The other thing is I found in the Supreme Court of Canada, the most important thing to do, especially the day before a hearing, is to work with your co-counsel and have your co-counsel ask all the hard questions in your case. You should be able to see the hard questions in your case before you go to court. Um, I find that often government lawyers fail to do that. They, they, they seem to think there's no hard questions on their side. There always are hard questions on either side. And you should be able to anticipate about 75% of them. 25% you probably can't and you're going to have to deal with them on your feet. But if you can prepare yourself for about 75% of the hard questions that are going to come your way, you're very well prepared. Um, and then you won't be as flustered by the other 25% because at least you've been able to answer the 75% that have come your way. Um, and that's just a, an essential part of the process of preparing to go, especially to the, to the Supreme Court of Canada. I, I, I just want to add to what you've said. Um, when I was a lawyer the first time, preparation was everything. And preparation meant of course, preparing and writing your own factum, but then in, in preparing for the oral hearing, reading, rereading, and re-understanding the other guy's factum. And that's where, that's where you could expect many of the questions to come from, from the judges, because they would pick up the other guy, the other side's factum, and they would develop their questions based on that. Sometimes they would have their own questions based on their own knowledge or something from another case or what have you, but uh, but they would they would ask the hard questions coming from very often coming from the other side's factum. 
what I found was that if you really, really, really prepare by, as you say, having your co-counsel ask you the hard questions, then for the 25% that you didn't anticipate, you're going to be well enough prepared to be able to handle them. It'll it kind of um, just get you more more in tune with what's really going on in the case and you're going to be more comfortable with them. You're going to be faster on your feet with them if you've really prepared well by, by answering all the conceivable questions that you can possibly think of. As a matter of fact, John Roberts, the Chief Justice of the United States, uh, said that that's exactly what he did. He would sit down and write, write out a hundred uh, questions that he thought he could be asked. And... Uh, and uh, so it seems to have worked for him. So on the Of Counsel podcast, which is another legal podcast put on by Sean Robichaud in uh, Toronto, uh, Justice Stratus of the Federal Court of Appeal said that in terms of written advocacy, he thought that the IP bar was a cut above all the other bars that appear before the federal court or in the Federal Court of Appeal. I was just wondering if you had the same observation, and uh, if so, if you could expound on it. Um, well, look, uh, I guess I would say this. In IP, there's a lot of money, so and both sides are, are fighting tooth and nail for their position in the market and so on. So they're prepared to... to they're, they're prepared to pay and the lawyers will spend the time and the effort preparing their, their work. And, uh, and because of that, uh, they, they're always, the IP lawyers are always very, very, very well prepared. Uh, I found the same thing generally in tax for the same reason. But I also found, uh, you know, terrific. Any lawyer that's prepared to, any lawyer that is prepared to prepare, if I can put it that way, is going to be is going to be fine. And I, in my experience, I found that in every area of the law. What, unfortunately, what I found is that in some areas where, uh, where, uh, well, the, the 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 file just doesn't uh, warrant the the amount of time that it would warrant in an IP case, a lawyer just can't spend that amount of time as a practical matter preparing. Well, that's going to show up in court. But when you read the factums, like what when you read a factum makes you think this is a person who prepared well in writing this factum? Um, well, first of all, I should say this. In, um, uh, in IP, the, the lawyers are experts. And it's all statutory. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of jurisprudence, but it's all based on the Patent Act or the Copyright Act or Trademark, whatever it is. Um, uh, and uh, they, the, the, the older ones or the more experienced ones uh, are coming with a whole storehouse of knowledge in, in their area. And, and because of the... Um, amount of time that they can spend and do spend in their field and working with their client and spending time uh, getting to, to know the cases, um, 
that makes a difference. Also, in, um, in, in patent law, you know, a lot of the lawyers are engineers or chemists or scientists, so they have, you know, kind of they have a knowledge of the facts, uh, which in other areas, lawyers don't normally have personal training or knowledge of, of the facts, but in, in intellectual, in patent law in particular, very often the, the lawyers will have as good a knowledge of the facts often as, as the clients, so that obviously is a factor. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I think we'll, speaking of hard cases, uh, I think maybe we'll move on to, to discussing uh, what seems to be the, the bugbear of hard cases <laughs> in, in, uh, of, of, uh, in, in general with respect to the judiciary, at least for the past 30 years, uh, which is standard of review. Um, but maybe we'll start. So should we start maybe with a discussion of uh, COSA? Because it's been 10 years since, uh, since COSA was decided, which was decided uh, just in the months after Dunsmuir. Um, and uh, maybe we can start with Garth. Do you want to give us an overview of what COSA was about? Just the basic facts and then how it fit into this whole issue around standard of review uh, and, and what happened in COSA uh, in terms of the majority uh, decision? Sure. Um, in COSA, Justice Binney for the majority said reasonableness is a single standard that takes its color from its context. So in applying the reasonableness standard of review to a tribunal decision, the context is, is important. And that's important to understand COSA because COSA was not a case where there was a question of law to be decided. And in my view, the real contentious issues around the application of the standard of reasonableness or standard of review of reasonableness uh, occur in situations of questions of law, in particular questions of statutory interpretation. But COSA wasn't that. Uh, COSA was a review of a broad exercise of discretion. So it's important to understand that context. What had happened in COSA is that COSA had committed the criminal offense of criminal negligence causing death in a motor vehicle accident context, and in particular, a street racing context. Now, Mr. Cosa was not a bad person, but he did do a bad thing. And that's reflected in the sentence he got. He was able to convince the sentencing judge to give him a two-year, less-a-day conditional sentence to be served in the community. So he wasn't found to be a risk to the community. But he had done a bad thing by one night street racing with a friend of his and losing control of his vehicle and causing uh, the death of a woman. He was not a Canadian citizen. He was a permanent resident who had come from India as a child. And because of his criminal conviction, he was inadmissible to Canada. A removal order was issued against him under the Immigration and Refugee Protection Act. He appealed that removal order to the Immigration Appeal Division um, for a stay. So he sought a stay from the Immigration Appeal Division on humanitarian and compassionate considerations in light of all of his circumstances. Um, a majority of the Immigration Appeal Division dismissed his application for a stay. He sought judicial review of that decision in the federal court. The federal court justice applied a standard of patently unreasonableness and found that the majority's decision was not patently unreasonable and affirmed the uh, Immigration Appeal Division's decision to deny the stay. He further appealed to the uh, Federal Court of Appeal, 
the majority of the Federal Court of Appeal applied a reasonableness standard of review and found that the decision was unreasonable. Now, an interesting thing happened at that moment. The minister sought leave to appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, and the issue which they suggested was an issue of national or sufficient importance for the purpose of getting leave was the question of whether or not the standard of review in the context was found in the statutory provisions of the Federal Courts Act um, or was uh, the common law principles that had recently been redefined in, uh, in Dunsmuir. Now, that issue had never been raised in the lower courts, um, but it was raised by the minister to, to get leave. And then once they got leave, it was dealt with in a fairly summarily, summarily, summarily way by the minister. But it got them leave to the Supreme Court of Canada. And Justice Benny, for the majority, found that the common law principles, um, as set out in Dunsmuir, did apply. The standard review was reasonableness. In Dunsmuir, they had reduced the standards of review from three to two. There was used to be patently unreasonableness, reasonable simpliciter, and correctness, and they reduced those in Dunsmuir to two, to, to reasonableness and correctness. He found that the standard review was reasonableness and that the IAD's decision was not uh, unreasonable. Um, Justice Fish dissented. He also applied a standard review of reasonableness um, and found the IAD's decision was unreasonable, but he was in dissent, so that didn't help Mr. Kosa. Uh, Justice Rothstein, uh, and you can correct me if I'm incorrect, but my understanding is he found the um, standard review to be uh, in the Federal Courts Act, in the language of the Federal Courts Act, in particular, um, the section which says, uh, or one of, the, one of the grounds of appeal is that a tribunal based its decision or order on an erroneous finding of fact that it made in a perverse or capricious manner or without regard for the material before it. And uh, Justice Rothstein, as I understand it, found that the idea had not committed such an error uh, and that therefore their decision was um, was upheld. At a, a continuing legal education seminar a few months later, I appeared along with Cheryl Mitchell, who had been counsel for the minister, and Joe Arve, who had been counsel for the uh, Immigration Appeal Division. And Joe's thoughts were that if you read COSA um, and looked at the decision in COSA by the Supreme Court of Canada, that the court essentially applied a patently unreasonableness standard, something akin to a patently unreasonableness standard. And he was quite concerned that um, it would be, going forward from COSA, it would be very difficult for applicants for judicial review to demonstrate that tribunal decisions had been unreasonable, that the bar has been set very high. Um, I don't agree that that's been the result. I think that uh, courts have generally been sensitive to the context uh, of the judicial review um, and have been open to find decisions unreasonable for a variety of reasons where they are unreasonable and again for, for whatever reason. Um, and the concept of sort of sensitivity to the context is actually found in the, uh, and I'm not sure I pronounce it, the case is going to the Supreme Court of Canada, Vavilov? Vavilov. It's, yeah, it's going to be heard on December 4th and it's one of the cases, the citizenship case that's going up to the Supreme Court of Canada in which they're going to review the issue of standard of review. Um, and the court said there that because of the court's sensitivity to the rule of law concerns, 
that they may apply a more a differential standard in a more exacting manner. Um, and the issue there was the question of statutory interpretation. Now, I've read the Attorney General of Canada's, or I should say the minister's, factum um, in that case, and they suggested that the Federal Court of Appeal was wrong to suggest that they could apply more exacting application of the reasonableness standard in that particular context. But I think the what is true is that there is always a tension in judicial review between the rule of law and the court's obligation to uphold the rule of law and the legislature's decision to delegate to a tribunal the power to make a decision. Um, and in some cases, the rule of law concerns are going to be highlighted or more sensitive. And in other cases, the uh, decision of the legislature to delegate to the tribunal are going to have more prominence. And in COSA, because Parliament had granted the um, Immigration Appeal Division a very broad discretion, whether to grant a stay or not, based on humanitarian and compassionate considerations, um, the, the level of deference was going to be particularly high. Um, so that was my, uh, my take from, from COSA. It was obviously a disappointing result for my client, um, but I don't think it's had some of the more catastrophic um, effects that some people thought it might have when it first came out. Just, uh, Justice Roth, do you want to maybe talk a little bit about the context in which you were writing your concurring opinion at the time, uh, which took a rather different tack than, uh, than the rest of the court at the time? How much time have we got? How much time have we got? <laughs> let me, if you don't mind, let me just back up a step just before COSA. Um, and uh, and just say a word about Dunsmuir. Um, the court's objective in Dunsmuir was to try to simplify standard review. So, Garth, as you said, uh, I think it was you, uh, uh, Dunsmuir did away with the reasonable or the patent unreasonable standard review and just said there were only two standards. And we tried to get rid of all of this uh, uh, language about pragmatic and functional, but frankly, it's just words, doesn't mean anything. And we also tried to say that if the standard review had been established, well established, uh, that the court didn't have to do a full standard review kind of analysis in every, in every case. Um, comes COSA, and I have to say that it, I suppose, depends a little bit upon the, the, the way in which a judge views his or her job. Um, to me, when you're doing statutory interpretation, which is where, where the, the rubber hits the road in all of the, the standard review cases, where where the question is, did the tribunal do what the statute authorized it to do or not? Um, uh, in, in those kinds of cases, it, to my way of thinking, it's very difficult not to do what, what ultimately it really turns out to be essentially a correctness review. Uh, you can start with a tribunal decision and you can 
You can say that you're being deferential, you can use the term reasonableness, but in the end of the day, you got to read the statute and you got to find, uh, find out what the statute means and what it says. Now, you may end up saying, well, tribunal came to this interpretation of the statute and we don't have any problem with that. That's fine. Uh, but it doesn't mean that you do a, a once-over lightly. You know, you've got to read, you're, you're a court. You're, you're a court and you, you have to read the statute the way, the way you would for any kind of case. Uh, and, and frankly, and do your job. Uh, uh, so, so, so let me, let me just see if I can, if I can put it this way. Where a judge feels that his or her job is to interpret the law and to respect the legislature, then that's going to drive that judge in a certain direction. Where judges feel that they kind of, I want to be careful about the way I say this, but where they feel that they have a better idea and that they can do justice better or they can make the system better in another way, then they go that way. To me, when you're talking about standard of review and you're dealing with tribunals, all tribunals are creatures of the legislature, so the legislature sets them up, and the legislature tells us when they, when they want the courts to keep their hands off the decision by enacting a primitive clause. This is not, this is not obscure stuff. Uh, in the labor relations area, there are, there are a lot of statutes with primitive clauses, and that we know uh, historically comes from the fact that uh, the legislatures felt that the courts were being too intrusive in labor relations cases back in the 60s and 70s and so forth. Sorry, can I just have, I'm just going to ask you to explain, can you explain what a privative clause is? Yes. Maybe just very Sorry. briefly. Privative clause is a clause uh, in the legislation that says that the decision should not be subject to review uh, by any court. And they'll be worded differently. And sometimes the the privative clause will say uh, shall not be subject to review um, for any legal question or or they, they they may use different language. But but the general message of the privative clause is that the legislature wants the court to keep their hands off of the decision. The courts the courts can't do that absolutely because of what you said, Garth, the rule of law. Uh, you know, I mean, if you think of it in this way, uh, if a provincial legislature attempted to do something within federal jurisdiction, somebody has to tell them that they can't do that, and that's the court under sections 91 and 92 of the, the Constitution Act. Um, uh, the same thing is true for a tribunal. Even if the courts, even if the legislature says, with a privative clause, keep your hands off, the courts can't absolutely abdicate because there may be some, some serious misinterpretation of the statute law that the the court has to correct. So 
So, and that's where this whole concept of patent unreasonableness came from back, back in the 1970s, the late 1970s, with a QP and the Brunswick liquor case that, that, that kind of was, the, I, guess, I suppose, the mother mode of the, the, the start of, of, of deference. Uh, but QP was a privative clause case, uh, as it turns out. Um, I, I, am a re I believe that the right approach is to respect the legislature. In the Federal Courts Act, uh, the, the, the act is really, really very straightforward. It tells you that you can appeal or you can appeal or seek judicial review on a question of law or a question of jurisdiction. Uh, and it tells you, as you said, Garth, when you were quoting from the Act, that when it came to questions of fact, uh, the court would only get involved if, it was, if the decision was capricious or perverse or uh, without regard to the material. That is about as deferential as you could ever imagine. Capricious or, or, or perverse is, is language that... I mean, you normally don't see that kind of language in legislation, but you see it there. That's, to me, telling you that for facts, you keep your hands off. For law, you don't. Otherwise, we don't see those words in the Federal Courts Act when it comes to the questions of law. To me, it's, it, if I can use the term, it's patently obvious that there is no indication in the Federal Courts Act that when a judicial review or an appeal comes forward on a question of law, no indication that the court should, should be deferential. I think Justice Binney in his majority reason said, well, that was dealing with the question but not dealing with the issue of the intensity of review. I don't see, with, with respect, I just don't see that in the legislation. In the legislation, it seems to me very obvious that the court was drawing a distinction between the deference you give on findings of fact and and that you don't give it on questions of law. I'll be I'll be entirely candid with you. When I was at the Supreme Court and I had to uh, write a decision from a tribunal, I I would use the term reasonableness. And I'd be careful through the decision not to say incorrect or wrong or anything like that and keep referred to reasonable or unreasonable. But I do a correctness review. I don't know how you do a statutory interpretation case without getting to the statute and, uh, and, uh, and trying to analyze it and trying to deal with it. I'll say this. If you really do have an expert tribunal, chances are that the court is going to agree with the tribunal, whether you whether it's reviewed on correctness or not, because the tribunal is, is expert and the tribunal wrote a good decision, and that decision is going to stand. But it's not going to stand because the, the court does a once-over lightly. The decision is going to stand because the court is going to look carefully at it and going to say, yep. The tribunal got it right, and and um, um, and in fact, in um, 
escaping me the, the, the name of the decision, but it was the competition case that Justice Iacobucci... Uh, Seldom? So, uh, Seldom, yeah. Um, where he cited uh, Justice... Um, um, his name escapes me, but there's a quote in there where where the quote says, "If if if a point is is important and it's it, it, and it's to be respected, it'll be well explained." The quote is is carefully in there, and and Justice Yagabuchi cited it. Well, that to me tells you the whole story. That's everything. When you're reviewing a tribunal decision, even on a correctness standard, if it's well explained and well articulated and it's understandable to the judges, it'll probably stand. The judges will probably agree with it. You don't have to you don't have to go through this issue of deference. So uh, so when I when I wrote my reasons in COSA, those were the thoughts that, that I had. No, I, and, and, and because I've said this at conferences before, and now I'm no longer a judge, I can say again, to me, standard review is just a colossal waste of time. You know, it's like dealing with metaphysics. Uh, you're trying to, to reach for some sort of uh, lodestar that's going to tell you jurisprudentially the right way to decide this or that case. It's, that, that isn't what's happening, you know. Uh, lawyers and judges uh, are using the terminology, but uh, there's no particular consistency from case to case. And uh, I, I, think I, I must say that I don't know what the court is going to do, obviously, in the Bell and the Vavilov cases that are coming up in December, but I can tell you if I were there and my colleague said, we're going to look at standard review all over again, I know where I'd be coming out and I'd, I'd be coming out and saying, look, we're, in my view, we should be treating tribunal decisions the same way as we treat trial, trial decisions. Legal questions get reviewed on correctness standard, factual questions, mixed fact and law where you can't extricate a legal question. Uh, discretionary decisions, decisions based on policy get deference, but legal questions don't get deference. And I, you know, part of the problem with the standard of review dialogue or discussion or issues is that there's, a, in my opinion, there's a bit of a legal fiction going on in it because. The courts will, on the one hand, say, well, this is all about legislative intent. So the standard review is what the legislator, legislative body intended. But because there's often nothing said in the legislation about the standard of review, um, the courts have to figure it out. And so in, in Southam, for instance, uh, Justice Yakabuchi created a third standard of review. There was correctness and there was patently unreasonableness that it came out of the labor context, as, as Justice Rothstein said. And he said, well, for some cases, there needs to be a middle standard that's more, that's more, uh, more exacting in its review, that looks deeper into the decision. So we're going to create a reasonableness standard. Well, that couldn't possibly have been in the legislative, legislature's intent, because it didn't exist before the judicial pronouncement in Southam. 
So there's a, a little bit of a, a legal fiction going on about we're trying to divine uh, the legislative intent, um, uh, but it, 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 it may not be there in the legislative intent because it's, or it may be not clear. And then where it is in the legislative intent, or arguably is, like in the Federal Courts Act, I found Justice Binney's decision, there was quite a, a resistance to the idea of legislated standards of review because he said, well, they're not going to be flexible enough because there's so many different tribunals and how do you apply one scheme of standard review to these hundreds of, of federal tribunals? Um, but if we're really talking about legislative intent, wasn't the first place we'd look is the statute to see if there is uh, legislative intent? And when we read the language that I read earlier, uh, uh, erroneous findings of fact made in a perverse or capricious manner or without regard for the material before it, well, that sounds to me like a standard of review. Uh, like a pretty specific one. And in fact, the day before I argued COSA, I sat down and I started to think, well, what do those, those things mean? And so I had to go to the library and look up the definitions of perverse or capricious. And because I wanted to convince the court that, that that's what had happened in my client's case. And in fact, what I argued most is that they had made their decision without regard for the material before it. And John Turner, uh, who's the Minister of Justice, I believe at the time the Federal Courts Act was first, or Federal Court Act was first uh, passed in the 19, early 1970s, talked about being a lawyer and getting a decision for a client and sometimes thinking, well, how did they come to this decision? It doesn't seem to be based on the material before it. It seems to be based on something else or, or, no, or based on nothing. Um, and one of the surprising things I found about Justice Finney's decision is he goes on and talks quite a bit about the most um, comprehensive legislated standards of review, which are happened to be in BC's Administrative Tribunals Act, and he talks about those and, and how to interpret those and their role and so on. Well, British Columbia was not a party or an intervener in COSA, and yet he had a lot to say about the BC legislature's attempt to pass these, these to legislate these standards of review, um, and that COSA is often cited by the BC courts because it's a Supreme Court of Canada decision and they're talking about a BC Act, even though the BC government and Attorney General wasn't part of that um, appeal in COSA. So I, I agree with Justice Rostin that sometimes I think we spend too much time. I mean, uh, one judge said at a conference a number of years ago, he says, you know, there's like four or five major decisions from the US Supreme Court on standard review. And in Canada, we have just, it never seems to end. And, and I don't know, maybe it can't end because, and I said this to Peter before, because of the tension between the rule of law and, on the one hand, and the trying to respect the legislative uh, decision to delegate this decision-making to not courts, but to tribunals. And maybe we're just always going to end up struggling with that tension. And that's what we're seeing in these standard review cases. Well, I think one of the, and I guess my question for, uh, and for I guess for both of you, is in this tension, you talked earlier, Justice Rothstein, about the stance that the judge has in relation to the legislature, in relation to the decision maker, and that you have different attitudes on the parts of different judges. And to a large extent, the standard review discussion is about guidance to judges and having some attempt at uniformity amongst the judiciary, which we see, I mean, just in the recent uh, update from uh, um, Professor Rehag, about the wide variation that we see in 
review in the federal court in terms of the uh, the likelihood that certain judges will overturn decisions versus other judges who are very unlikely to overturn decisions. Um, and that's still the case, I, forget, I think it's almost been 10 years since his first study of, of uh, on, on a, the similar issue. Um, and I guess my question in terms of this distinction, and we had tried back in the day to, the, there was this distinction between whether it was jurisdictional grounds or not jurisdictional grounds, and then you realize the more you think about it that any decision that doesn't go along with the law is outside the jurisdiction of a tribunal, and so it's not really a, a meaningful distinction, and then there's been this discussion around are there true questions of jurisdiction, and we haven't actually seen one since Dunsmuir, and you realize when you actually think about jurisdiction that it's not a helpful distinction. And you've proposed, and I guess the discussion today, we're talking about this fact versus mixed fact and law. And my, when I think about this, I, I think about in, in the immigration context, Kantasami is about humanitarian and compassionate. Um, what does humanitarian and compassionate mean? I mean, is that law? Is that mixed fact in law? Is what, what are we talking about when we're talking about the actual application of a humanitarian and compassionate standard, or which is the same or a similar standard to the one that was being applied in COSA? Um, or membership, which you, you struggled with in Poshte and, and a number of other cases when we talk about membership in a terrorist organization. There's a, a legal aspect to it. And I, I guess the question for me is, are we, um, the, on the one hand, do we give notice, no direction to judges at all and just let different judges intervene more or less as they see fit? Or do we, do we have this tension of trying to provide guidance to judges to say, this is when you intervene, this is when you don't? I don't know if you have thoughts on uh, um Well, I have to say this, that, you know, when you get, when, you, when you're looking for guidance that is too granular, it's probably not going to be applicable overall. Um, I mean, look, I, I say the, the legislation gives you the guidance. The legislation says law, correctness, fact, policy, discretion, re deference, and that's, that's the guidance that I say judges should, uh, should, should be guided by. Um, uh, I'm, I, I, you, your example, or the example you used was one of mixed fact and law, which is always difficult. Uh, and there's going to be a tension amongst judges and, and lawyers as to, um, well, what we call segmentation. And so if you can extric, extricate the legal question from the mixed question, then you're, you're uh, segmenting. And if you can legitimately do that, then I say decide the legal question on a correctness standard. Namely, what's the rule? What is the legal rule? That's what you're trying to figure out. Okay, this is the legal rule. The next step is the application of that rule. And, uh, and when you're applying the rule, I guess you have to look and see, well, are you applying the rule properly or did you deviate and somehow 
forget the way in which you define the rule and, uh, and you somehow are, have gone off on a tangent in your application or have you been true to the definition that you've created for that rule uh, when you applied it to the facts. Um, uh, look, I'm not suggesting that it's a, it's a piece of cake. It's not going to be easy in all in all cases. And if it's really if if you're really at the stage of uh, of, of a mixed fact and law question, then I say, well, I guess I say what Justice Yakovlevsky said. Um, I suppose there are some mixed questions that are going to have more of a legal input, some mixed questions that are going to have more of a factual input, and so you may get into a bit of a, a, a log jam there and trying to, trying to figure out which way you should go. But I do have to say this, I'm not sure that I had many difficult experiences on that account. I, I didn't have many questions where, uh, where we were fussing with mixed questions of fact and law. I may be wrong, but I don't think so. I think that, that, that normally when you were dealing with a tribunal decision, the, the question was one of statutory interpretation, the governing statute of the, uh, of the tribunal, and that was a, a straight question of law. And so I, I would think that we save a lot of time and a lot of misery for a lot of people if we simply said, when you're interpreting the statute, you apply a correctness standard unless a privative clause applies. When COSA was decided, did you anticipate at the time where standard of uh, review jurisprudence would go? So like, then it was, I think, in COSA that statutes would, like the standard of review in statutes would be reasonableness. And I think since then, um, the reasonableness standard, it seems, is being applied to pretty much everything from questions of law now to even charter decisions to, I think, recently in West Coast Fraser Mills jurisdiction. Did you anticipate in COSA how far uh, along the deference path the jurisprudence would develop? No, no, I can't say that I did. But what I can say is this. I don't want to get ahead of this, but I'll 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 mention Alberta teachers uh, as uh, along the way. My view, it was just my personal view when we were dealing with Dunsmuir, was to if I couldn't get the the judges to agree to my simple approach, saying legal questions go on correctness, if I couldn't go get them to do that, then. My view was, let's keep it as simple, make it as simple as we possibly can to avoid big, long arguments about standard review. And so the way I understand the, the jurisprudence to have developed in a halting kind of way was to try to create categories. And so if it was a... Um, uh, a question outside the expertise of the tribunal and uh, one of general general law that would take correctness. If it was a dispute between two, or not a dispute, but a jurisdiction between two uh, tribunals, it might be correctness. And if it was a true question of jurisdiction, it would be correctness. And there was one more that just is escaping me. 
Um, and otherwise it would be reasonableness. And the whole point of all of that was to say, look, just see which category you fit into. Once you see what category you fit into, it's, it's done. You, you're, and 95% of the cases will be reasonableness. And I, I don't want to be intellectually dishonest, but I told you before, I don't know how you do a statutory interpretation without, doing, without looking carefully at the statute. As far as I was, I didn't care what you called it. You could have called it a banana, but you just use the term reasonableness and go and do your job. That was my view. And then in Alberta Teachers and this year in another case that they, I think one of you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago, uh, in Alberta Teachers, I looked and said, I don't, I don't understand any distinction between jurisdiction or law or true question of jurisdiction. That doesn't mean anything. And, um, and uh, so I tried to jettison true question of jurisdiction in, in, uh, in Alberta Teachers to try to reduce the number of categories to three instead of four. And, um, and I got pushback from Justice Binney and I think Justice Cromwell. And uh, so instead of being able to jettison true question of jurisdiction, absolutely, the people who were going to support my reasons said, well, why don't you just say we haven't seen one and, uh, and it's, it's going to be very narrow if, it, if there is such a thing. And this spring, in, in a judgment, the name of which I just forget, they reiterated, the majority reiterated that, uh, that view, which happens to be my view. Uh, I can tell you where that originally comes from, but I don't want to take a lot of time going back into history. Um, uh, so to answer your question directly, I didn't, I didn't know where it was going to go, but I know what my personal intention was, was to try to keep it simple and try to, as Justice Binney has said uh, in speeches, you know, forget the wind-up, make the pitch. And as far as I was concerned, the wind-up was standard review. Just say it and move on to the merits of the case. That's what the parties are there for, and that's what they're interested in. And that's really why, I mean, COSA came up through the federal courts and the Federal Courts Act applied. And I went back and I, when I wrote the factum in COSA, and I went back to look at the history of the federal court uh, and its creation. And it was really interesting because I, I believe it was John Turner who, who spoke about wanting to give the little guy in, in the Canadian society uh, a real opportunity to have tribunal decisions reviewed because there was a real feeling out there, according to him, that often the tribunal decisions weren't fair. Uh, weren't reasonable, weren't fair, weren't correct, whatever you want to call it. And there needed to be a true mechanism, an easy mechanism to allow for those reviews, so that those decisions which, which didn't meet the standard, um, whatever it was, uh, the person would have a remedy. And before then, each of the federal tribunals were reviewed in the provincial superior courts, which caused problems, and so they created the federal court. Um, but that was an important impetus to create the court was that people could go and have a, a, a review of the decisions and have them overturned and get a remedy if um, they weren't up to the standard. And uh, I think that's really the most important thing for, from, from representing a client is I want my client to get a remedy. 
for what I find, what I say is a decision that um, isn't isn't fair or isn't reasonable or isn't correct or whatever you want to call it, it doesn't really matter. It's the, what's really matters to the client is getting the remedy, which is a new hearing or whatever, based on the merits. As you say, let's just get at the merits and argue what the merits are. What are the problems with the decision? Did they fail to consider the material before them? Did they make a, a, a problem of writing error in fact or a wrong error in fact? Or did they misinterpret the statute or whatever? And so that's what's really important. We seem to forget that sometimes. We can talk very intellectually about standard review and so on, but what really matters to the applicants is the remedy at the end of the day. Um, and I'm hopeful that, that you know, at least the Supreme Court of Canada has, is hearing the complaints that are out there about the, the difficulty in applying the standard review uh, law that's presently out there. Um, I don't think we're going to get all the problems solved. The, you know, there's, there's, there's too many of them, but um, if they can provide some guidance so that what, at the end of the day, the applicants for judicial review can get a fair review by a court and where appropriate, get a fair remedy. You know, you, <laughs> you, you remind me of a story that I sometimes tell. Uh, you know, you've got a client and you lose in the tribunal and the tribunal decision says, well, there was no evidence of this, that, or the other thing. So the client comes in and you're talking to him and he says, what can we do? And you say, well, we can seek judicial review. And he said, okay, so then we'll put in the evidence on judicial review. And you say, no, 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 you don't understand. At the judicial review, the review is on the record. You don't get to put in new evidence on the review. He says, oh, okay. But the tribunal said that there was this legal error that we made, and uh, or at least it was legal. We lost on this legal point, and you're telling me that the tribunal was wrong in the way that they uh, de decided the legal point. So we're going to go into the judicial review, and we're going to correct that, and the, the judges are going to correct the legal error. And then you say, well, not so fast. There's standard review. And I, I, it used to drive me crazy when I used to hear the term, the tribunal may have the right to be wrong. And that was... Can you imagine saying that to a client? How has how a client got to appreciate that? That's why, to my way of thinking, at least on questions of law, a client is entitled to have a court look at it fresh and clean. And, and look, we're, they're judges. I mean, they're trained. That's, that's their job. Well, I know that was one of the biggest, uh, when we were in before the court on Trent, I think you, that was after you were no longer, uh, no longer on the court, but uh, that I think several of the justices, and I've always had a lot of trouble with this, and Garth and I have debated this point several times, is this idea that there can be two reasonable interpretations of the law at the same time, and that you end up with this kind of Schrodinger's cat type of situation when you go in front of the tribunal where... It could, you know, and in this case, it was whether or not a conditional sentence order was a term of imprisonment, and it could be a term of imprisonment or not a term of imprisonment. You'll find out when you get the decision, um, which was the, the case for a long time in citizenship law. We had this kind of Schrodinger's cat situation because there were no appeals and you had two possible interpretations that had been upheld by the court and the citizenship judge could just decide which interpretation of the law to apply and it was an absurd situation for from a, a lawyer's perspective and and uh or at least from my my perspective it wasn't something that uh 
And trying to explain that to the client was always challenging, is that, well, well, what is the law that's going to apply? It's like, well, we'd like them to apply this version of the law, but there's this other version of the law they could apply, and we'll find out when we get the decision which version of the law they apply. If they apply this version of the law, you'll lose. If they apply that version of the law, you'll win. And there's nothing we can do about it either way. And what Peter's talking about there is the, was the definition of residency for citizenship. So under the old act, you had to be uh, in Canada for three years out of four. And because there were no, and so the jurisprudence developed that whatever the citizenship judge chose as the defin of re, definition of residency, whether it required physical presence or basically just being abroad with substantial ties to Canada, uh, whatever test the citizenship judge decided. And what was funny was people used to always say, well, it's because there's no certified questions, there's no way to the federal court of appeal. Whereas now the federal court of appeal would likely say, well, both approaches can be reasonable, leaving it as a permanent state in law under the reasonableness standard. Um, yes, <laughs> which is which is yeah, which is um, and it's something I don't think the Supreme Court of Canada has directly addressed, um, which which I found unfortunate because I think it's been raised with them a few times and they haven't directly addressed that problem. Uh, I think it should be addressed because it raises all kinds of issues about procedure as well. I get to go before, according to that approach, I get to go before a tribunal and say, well, there's this interpretation which the federal court found to be reasonable, but I'm going to suggest to you, tribunal, there's another reasonable interpretation. And you have to hear me out because the law says, yeah, there may be more than one reasonable interpretation and I want you to come to a different decision. I mean, that's very, it's, it's most difficult to, to, it's hard enough for lawyers to understand this, but to try to explain this to clients, I can't imagine. So. Right. Well, I don't know if you have any, do, do you have any last thoughts on, uh, on this topic? And we'll, uh, I know that our listeners will, uh, um, well, hopefully are still, for the listeners who've stuck through this, the, the, <laughs> to this point, we'll definitely I'll say one that. thing and then I'll give Justice um, Rossi the last word. It makes a difference. This may sound esoteric and very legalistic and, and hard to understand, but it makes a difference. And COSA is probably a good example of that. There was a dissent in the Immigration Appeal Division. Um, there was a dissent in the Federal Court of Appeal. And Justice Fish dissented in the Federal Court. Um, the Supreme Court. Uh, sorry, in the Supreme Court of Canada. Thank you. You know, what the standard review is, how you view it, how you apply it, makes a huge different difference against the people that matter, which are the parties. Um, and, you know, Mr. Kosa, unfortunately, had to, he had two children that were born in Canada by the time the Supreme Court of Canada decided its decision, and um, he had to uh, return to India. Uh, he couldn't stay in Canada where, his, where he was married to a woman who had Canadian citizenship, and he had two children with Canadian citizenship, and he was required to return to India. I'm not saying that's a wrong decision and shouldn't have happened, but it has consequences. The standard review and its application has real consequences. Well, the Supreme Court is going to look at it again in December. And uh, I, I think there's one thing that I can guarantee. I haven't spoken, obviously, I haven't spoken to any of the judges. Uh, but I think there's one thing that I can guarantee, and that is the court will not be unanimous. Uh, I think that there, I, I think you have been able to see in some decisions in the spring of this year and, and, and in the last two or three years that some judges seem to be wanting to move on legal questions closer to a correctness standard. 
some judges are not there. Some judges are, are adhering to the reasonableness approach. Uh, and I, I would say that unless somebody comes up with some kind of magic bullet, uh, uh, you're going to see varying views from the judges of the Supreme Court, uh, and um, and we'll we'll have to see what ultimately what what comes of it, uh, and hopefully the decision that they will make will will lead us forward and make it. I I say make it simpler and easier and not as time consuming as. Uh, it's been in the past, and we'll just have to wait and see what they what they come up with. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, to both of you. Uh, it's uh, it's really been a pleasure. I've uh, definitely a lot of things to think about, and we'll uh, we'll see what the court does with these uh, these decisions in December. So, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.